You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Psalms. Here's Nate. Well, today we turn to Psalm 123, the fourth of 15 Psalms of Ascents that the ancient Israelites would sing on their thrice annual pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. And this particular song would teach the pilgrims to develop an eye of hope in their lives, a different way of seeing the world, a different way of processing the events of life. This psalm is like a flare in the night sky. It's a way of crying out to God for help and for strength. And of course, you know, for us to really live the pilgrim, counterintuitive, disciple kind of life, we really do have to learn how to look for God, how to see God, how to have an eye of hope in God. And You know, this takes a faith, as we're going to see, that goes beyond the seen realm. It takes a servant heart towards God. It takes a patience in waiting for God's grace, and it takes habitually turning to God when contempt comes our direction. I'd like to read the entire psalm, and then we'll take it piece by piece. It's a very short psalm. A song of ascents, verse 1, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the world. So to develop this hopeful look or this hopeful eye, and and of course, as we read the psalm, hopefully you noticed that so much of this has to do with the eyes, the, the lifting up of the eyes. One of the first things that is present is the ability to, with faith, learn to look into heaven. You know, if you really want to live the the Christian pilgrim discipleship, narrow gate, narrow path life, you have to develop the ability to to look into heaven when problems arise in your life. The way our pilgrim sings it is he says to you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Now, what is happening here is that our pilgrim is in a by the way, singing the song kind of way, is announcing that he knows that God dwells ultimately not in Jerusalem or in the temple or in the praises of the people ultimately or even primarily, but that God ultimately and primarily dwells in the heavens, and that in the heavens, the place where God exists, there is a throne, 
and that God inhabits that throne, that he's seated upon that throne, that the throne is not vacant, but he is enthroned in that heavenly realm. And this, of course, was important for the pilgrims to remember. You know, God had called them up to Jerusalem because he'd called them up to the tabernacle or the temple for worship three times each year. And of course, God did, in a sense, dwell between the angels' wings that were carved out in gold and and set upon the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. He he dwelt there at that mercy seat. He dwelt there in the Holy of Holies. But our pilgrim understands that ultimately that is simply an image of the real throne of God, just a shadow of the real throne of God. In saying this, he is keeping himself from an error that Israel eventually made. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, the deacon, is crying out against the religious leaders, he rebukes them for a lot of different things. But one thing that he hints at is that they had begun to believe that the Most High dwells exclusively, solely, and only in a house made by hands. But he says, the Most High does not dwell in a house made by hands. So even though God, for the ancient Israelite, was found in Jerusalem in the, in the temple and inhabiting the praises of the people, he was not ultimately in that realm. So what our pilgrim is saying here is that I am going to lift my eyes up. In an earlier psalm, we saw him say, do I look to the hills? No, I, I can't look to the hills. That's not where my help comes from. But here, our pilgrim is not tempted to look upon the hills because he is now looking to God. And this is hard for us because we are inclined to look around or down or in, but our pilgrim looks up to the throne of God. Now, I believe that when a person becomes born again, born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit enters into them and the Spirit begins to pull them in a Godward direction. In Romans 8, verse 2, Paul called it a law of the Spirit that exists inside of us, like a, like a law of gravity pulling things to earth. The law of the Spirit of life is pulling us towards the freedom that is ours in Christ. In Romans 8, verse 4, he goes on to explain that The spirit in us is working in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, the law of the spirit, the spirit is pulling us toward a life that is in line with the righteous requirement of the law. So even though the law can't justify us, and even though we were guilty and dead in our trespasses and sins, now counterintuitively, as we've come to Christ for forgiveness and he's caused us to be born again, Now the Spirit is actually pulling us to a destination that we could not previously go. Fulfillment, actually living a life in submission to the righteous requirement of the law. Part of the way that the Holy Spirit is doing that, Romans 8 verse 15, is by causing us to cry out within, because he's the Spirit of adoption, 
Abba, Father. We, we know who our God is. We know where we belong. There's this thirst inside of us. So, Romans 8, 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And Paul goes on to explain that God is able to, by the Spirit, take even the difficult things of life. He works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the Spirit of God who is pulling us in that Godward direction. So when the psalmist says, to you I lift my eyes, what we have to understand is that the Spirit of God is trying to pull us as Christians into that direction of saying, God, I am going to cry out to you. I want you. I love you. But as much as the Spirit is doing that, we need to, by faith, learn to do that. We need to learn to look into heaven. Now, in a moment, this song is going to become communal. Uh, You might have noticed that there will be phrases or words, you know, our God and us will be uh, the way that the rest of the song goes. But this first statement is a individual statement. I lift up my eyes. The reality is you can't control where anyone else looks, but you are involved in this process of saying, I want to be that kind of person. And so our pilgrim is beginning to develop that eye of hope by lifting his eyes to God in the midst of disaster or catastrophe. I live on the Monterey Peninsula in California. We're a beautiful little coastal town. But because we're a peninsula, there's a huge Monterey Bay, a body of water that you can look across and see another community, Santa Cruz. And on some days, it's difficult to see across this large body of water over to Santa Cruz because of fog or, you know, rain or, you know, some a, a darkness. But at times, if you really look, you can see it. And I remember one time taking my family to the other side of the bay to Santa Cruz and camping and climbing up on this little hill and being able to look across the water. And, you know, with my trained eye, I could see, you know, I knew as an adult, there's Pacific Grove and there's Monterey and there's Seaside and there's where my house would be. And I could see that general direction from across the water. And I'd show my children and say, look, there's where, that's where we live. And they just, you know, they couldn't, they didn't know. What am I seeing? Where where am I supposed to look? But after a while, as I'd point things out, they begin to learn. Oh, that's where, you know, Pacific Grove is. That's where our home would be. If If we were able to see it, that would be the direction. And this whole psalm is set within that kind of idea that there are, different things in life that might fog up our vision of God, but that in that time, whether it's sin or shame or loneliness or fatigue or a person that is getting in the way of our vision of God, the pilgrim life says, I'm going to lift my eyes up above all of that and I'm going to see God. Uh, An old 
pastor named Robert Nisbet said it this way. He said here in this psalm, earth and heaven, dust and deity, the poor, weeping, sinful children of mortality, the holy, ever-blessed, eternal God. How wide is the interval of separation between them? But over the awful chasm, broader than ocean, though it be, love and wisdom in the person of Jesus Christ have thrown a passage by which the most sinful may may repair unterrified to his presence and find the shame and the fears of guilt exchanged for the peace of forgiveness and the hope that is full of immortality. So one of the first things that we have to do is we have to remember that, man, in this world, in this life, we have got to, by faith, lift our eyes up to the heavens. We have to learn to look into heaven. Now he goes on in the song and says in verse 2, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Now this is a cool part of the song because the singer perhaps even isn't just our regular old pilgrim, but is perhaps a leader among the people. Because the whole tone turns. No longer is it a personal plea, but it's now a communal plea. And it begins by saying, behold, it's as if the leader turns to the congregation and says, hey, this is what we do. What we do is we look to God in heaven and we look to God in heaven like servants look to their masters. It's like he scanned the horizon looking for a proper illustration of how we are to look to God. And he said, I found one. Servants. That's how we look to God in heaven. And if you want to live the pilgrim disciple life, you have to learn to look to God like a servant looks to a master. You know, the reality is is that God has served us. Oh, how he's served us. He sent his son who laid down his life, and Jesus Christ came and he served us. And because God has served us, at times we might think that that's all that God does, that he exists for our bidding. And many people forget this and think of God as a, as a figure who should do their will. But the reality is we are designed to serve God. And the pilgrim knows this. The pilgrim understands this. We might be heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, but we are also servants of the Most High God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we should, by the mercies of God, present our bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. And when he says spiritual worship, he uses a couple of words that indicate to us logical, reasonable service. It is ultra reasonable, he's saying, for us to see ourselves as servants of God, laying down our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Man, we must, if we're going to live the Christian life, learn to look to heaven like a servant looks to their master. 
you know, in those ancient days when this psalm was written, servants would look to the master's hand for a multitude of things. You know, perhaps direction would be given with the master's hand, some kind of gesture or, you know, point of the finger. Uh, They would look to the master's hand for help, for assistance, for protection, for correction, or for reward, payment. And maybe you notice here that the illustration that he uses is he says servants to their master and a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. This helps us see that men and women, you know, servants and maids, a maidservant, and groups, servants and individuals, one maidservant, men and women, groups and individuals, we are to see God as our master. And what he's saying here is that we are not primarily even seeing ourselves as servants of man, but as servants of God. And this service of God flows from here into hospitality and compassion and helps and love. So we actually become strong and good at serving others by learning how to be a servant of God. And the reality is that this perspective, learning how to serve God and see him in this way, this is actually true and real freedom. Paul said in Galatians 5 verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's true and real freedom. But if you are going to live the Christian life, you're going to have to learn how to look to God like a servant looks to a master. Prayer is frustrating. Service of and to others is frustrating. Ministry is frustrating. Family is frustrating. It's all frustrating if you cannot look to God like a servant looks to a master. Now, he tells us, though, that he's going to look to God and look to the Lord like a servant to his master. And he says at the end of verse 2, till he has mercy upon us. You know, this to me is the most powerful part of the psalm. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to look to heaven, he says, until, you know, God has mercy on us. And then he says, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. The reality here is that our pilgrim and pilgrims are waiting for God's mercy. And the word mercy that's used is a word that some would actually translate favor and some would actually translate grace. And I think those are good words to describe it because it's a word that simply means to bend or to stoop in kindness to an inferior. This helps us understand the main emphasis of the servant-master relationship in this psalm. Yes, there is direction and help and protection and correction and reward that is given from the master to the servant. 
But the main emphasis is he is greater, we are lesser, and we are waiting for him to bring favor upon us. So we aren't seen here in this song as cowering servants, unsure of the master's love, but secure and loved and adopted as sons and daughters, confident that our future includes the mercy or the favor or the grace of God upon our lives. In a sense, because he's talking about being enthroned, you know, looking to the the throne of God. In a sense, this is an Old Testament version of the throne of grace that is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. There it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is on his throne. It is a throne of grace if you are covered by the blood of Jesus. And in your time of need, you can approach it to find the mercy and the grace that you need. And here our singer is saying, I am going to wait upon him and cry out to him till he has mercy on us. I'm going to wait for the mercy, the grace of God. To come upon my life. Now, you will have a difficult time waiting for God's grace if you aren't confident that that his grace is coming. You know, we have needs as human beings, desires, longings. And we have to trust and believe that God can give us that which we need in this life. You might have a strong thirst in your heart for community. I I want to know people. But as you cry out to God for that, Lord, community, friendship, connection. Lord, you know that I need this. You you know that I'm thirsting for this. Do you have an expectation that says, Lord, I'm looking to you. I'm looking to you for that. And I am going to wait for you to give me your answer to that request in my heart. I'm going to wait for you to give me that grace. And we might feel these different needs in our heart for love or kindness, assurance, affirmation, provision, direction. But the disciplined disciple, the the mature believer, the pilgrim, learns to look to God for that grace, learns to look to God for that favor and waits upon it waits for him. A pilgrim has learned to expect that grace from God. It might not come immediately, but it will surely come. It says in Isaiah 64, verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And I refer to that quotation because you think about Our lives, we are like the clay. He is the potter. He is building something good in our lives. Do we have that confidence? Do we believe? Do we look to God and say, God, I know that that grace is coming and I'm going to wait for you for that. I'm crying to you for mercy. It's not what I want, but grace. It's not a reward that I want, but grace. It's not punishment that I want, but grace. Give me grace, O Lord. To have an expectation of grace. 
Ezra prayed in Ezra chapter 9, verse 8, that God would brighten their eyes and grant them a little reviving in their slavery. What a beautiful prayer. Can you expect that God will brighten the eyes and grant a little reviving in the slavery of this life and world? The disciple, the pilgrim, they have trained their mind to look to God for grace. Now, finally, and lastly, fourthly, he says the reason that he's looking for that grace from God. He says at the end of verse 3, For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Now we see the reason that all of these prayers had launched out in the first place. We see the fog of the pilgrim. The fog was contempt and scorn. Contempt means disrespect or derision, and scorn is like contempt, but out loud. And Jesus, he endured both of these from people. They had a contempt attitude toward him and lashed out with him, uh, towards him with scorn. And the question we might ask is, what kind of scorn or contempt were our pilgrims here enduring? And perhaps... Some of this stemmed from the oppression during Ezra or Nehemiah's time when the enemies would come against them as they attempted to rebuild the temple and then rebuild Jerusalem. But even though many think that that's the backdrop of this song, it's it's inconclusive. We just don't know. I wonder if the question as to what scorn or contempt were they experiencing, I wonder if it's it remains unanswered intentionally so that pilgrims of every age could fill in the blank. What scorn and what contempt have you experienced? And the trained mind, the eye of hope, the pilgrim says, Lord, I've had enough. And to learn to look to God when you've had enough is a, is a great mark of maturity. You know, when you're despised, When you're rejected, what do you do? Where do you go? He's saying to God, I've had more than enough. That's the phrase he repeats twice. More than enough of contempt. More than enough of scorn. And that phrase, more than enough, literally means I've been glutted or sated or filled. I am stuffed. I've I've had so much of this. I've consumed so much of this. So they told God it was enough. But God knows And here, these pilgrims who say, it's enough, we're glutted, we're filled, it's too much. Here, God says, man, I'm finding you, you're praying. In other words, this pilgrim has allowed the scorn, the contempt to be redeemed. And the question is, will you, during times where you are just over it, you've had enough, what will you do? Will you, in that moment, allow those unsavory elements of life to push you to the throne of grace? Will you cry out to God? Will you turn your persecution into prayer? Don't let the contempt turn you into someone who's bitter at God or man. Remember David, who in being persecuted would sing when others would quit. He would write songs of prayers to God 
when others would have thrown in the towel and said, if this is what it means to have God in my life, I'm done. It was those who were at ease and those who were proud who were bringing this contempt against our pilgrim. But those who couldn't see God were the ones who also brought the scorn. They couldn't see the danger. They were blinded by their ease. They wouldn't cry out to God. They were numbed by their proud state. But our pilgrim, man, he cries out to God in the midst of this. So again, if you want to walk this pilgrim life, you've got to learn how to look into heaven. To walk by faith and not by sight, you have to learn to look to God like a servant looks to a master. You have to learn to look to God for grace. You have to learn to look to God when you've had enough. That eye must be developed. But as it is, we see the world so much more clearly and we'll continue on in our pilgrim path. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.